The following podcast is a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be sent to DeSantisProd at gmail.com. Are you talking shift? We are. It's time for the We're Talking Shift podcast. Now, now, now. Here to talk shift are your hosts, Lori Bischoff and Candace Parisi. We're talking shift. Welcome to the We're Talking Shift podcast. This is the podcast where we talk shift because we believe the antidote to feeling stuck is found by shifting our thinking and learning to listen to our intuition. I'm Lori Bischoff, and today on our Going Rogue guest segment, I'm going to be talking with a very special guest. He is a man who has gone rogue, oh, so many times in his life. Now, if you happen to be a wrestling fan, then you may know him by the name Easy e or you may recognize him from his WCW days and creator of the NWO, or perhaps his WWE days. He is indeed a man of so many talents. Uh, also, um, author of the best-selling book, Controversy Creates Cash. And yes, he's also my husband, Eric Bischoff. So I am so excited, Eric, to be talking to you today for a lot of reasons, but timing, the timing is so interesting because as you know, I am a massive consumer of TED Talks. I love TED Talks. I always find the most inspiring stuff on there. And this is extra special for me to be talking with you because you were recently invited and did a TED Talk, which I thought was just really special. It's unique to be able to do that. I mean, there's like 7 billion people on the planet, and not very many of them are invited to do a TED Talk. So I just think that's really cool, and I'm hoping that that's going to be exciting for you to talk about. No, it is, because it, it's something really unique and, and different. And look, I, I love talking about the wrestling business. You know, we pay our bills with me talking about the wrestling business. Um, but it's always exciting for me to talk about something other than the wrestling business. And here I get to do both. In this TED Talk, it's kind of like wrestling and politics, and, and my TED Talk was it's all one and the same. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I, um, I mean, I know that you had never even mentioned this before. I mean, for a lot of people that are teachers and educators and, you know, um, speakers and such, a TED Talk is a big goal of theirs. But I've never heard you mention that being a goal. It's not like this was something that you dreamed about doing and was on a bucket list for you. So not that I ever heard you mention anyway. So when this came kind of out of the blue, right, you weren't expecting the invitation. Um, how, you know, what was your first thought? What was your first reaction when somebody said, what do you think about doing this TED Talk? Uh, you're right. I never really thought about it before. And I know that you consume a lot of them. You, you know, you, you, you watch a lot of that stuff. But you watch a lot of things that I don't watch. So I, I wasn't aware that, you know, a TED Talk, or in my case, by the way, it was TEDx, which mm -hmm. is like the same format as a TED Talk, but it's independently promoted. Um, I, I, I never really thought about it before one way or the other. I've never aspired to be a public speaker, even though I spent 30 years speaking in public for a living, so to speak, no pun intended. But, um, you know, it just came to me from, it came to me through a mutual friend, um, uh, Tim, Tim Ryan, who had done a previous year's TED Talk with the same promoter, producer, organizer. 
So, you know, he, he kind of connected the, the two of us together and we spoke over the summer and I thought, well, what the hell, this is different. You know, I've never done this before. Let's give this a whirl. And I didn't really think too much about it. I know when you first told me, seriously, like I got nervous. You weren't, but I was like nervous because to me, it's such a big deal. And I remember um, when you told me about it and I said, wow, what are you going to talk about? And you're like, I don't know. I have no idea right now. I have to think about it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, what What do you mean you don't know? Well, You've only got a couple months. you got to figure months. this out. I know, for <laughs> me. a movie script in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, if, if I somehow got an invitation to do that, I'd be like, well, I'm going to need like a year to get ready for this. <laughs> you know what, though? That's, and that's what's really interesting or was interesting about this talk. And we'll get into more in depth about how this happened. But you know me, I, I'll put everything off to the last minute. I kind of yeah. work better when I've got a gun to my head than I do when I've got six months to plan. It's just the nature of who I am. I, I kind of like the pressure, and it, it brings out the best of me sometimes creatively or when it comes to solutions. And sometimes it brings out the worst, too. I see you snickering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going through my mind right now. I'm just like, zip it. Oh, you got to take the good with the bad. <laughs> right. But no, I didn't think about it. But here's what I did think about. I've, I've had to deliver a 15 or 18 minute scripted promo on live television in front of 20 or 30 or 40,000 fans live in an arena and three or four or five million people watching at home. How much more challenging could it be? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just the material. It, 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 yeah, it's a different venue. It's a different audience. But the reason I didn't get overwhelmed and start thinking about it too soon is because a I think I work better if I don't overthink things, and and b what the hell? That's, you know, you know six hundred people in the audience, big damn deal. <laughs> That's like a really bad night in wrestling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but cut to like one week later, the views are up to almost a quarter of a million. So it's it's more than just who's sitting there looking at, at you in the audience. It's, right. it's it's out there forever and it just keeps building. Well, that's building. the other thing I didn't anticipate because yeah. I, I wasn't familiar with the power and the magnitude and the attraction of TED Talks. So I, I didn't even look at the upside other than I get to do something different that I don't normally do. And even the performer in, performer in me, because I like to dust it off every once in a while. That's why I like doing podcasts. It's a little bit of the same thing. Um, but I thought, wow, this is a completely different thing. This will force me to think differently and, and do what I do differently. And I always, anytime you get a chance to kind of break out of a mold and, and deviate from the pattern, uh, I think it stimulates your brain and your creativity more than watching a movie or reading a book. At least it does for me. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think being pushed off the edge of a cliff is a good thing. I, I agree. I Totally. I mean, you literally... Um, create new pathways in your brain. I mean, there's a physical change that happens. So it's it's not just that you're growing, you know, emotionally and mentally, and and you're stimulated that way, and you're out of your, you know, comfort zone, or even if it's not a comfort zone thing for you, it's just a a, a different zone. But there's all kinds of changes that occur neurologically that I find to be fascinating. But that's that's a whole other subject. But uh, I just. I think that, what, maybe 10 days before you were supposed to go do this talk, you were still going, well, I think I know what I'm going to talk about. And I'm like, wow, it's like 
the we're counting down and when you finally said okay i think i've got it i was so excited when you told me what you're going to talk about because it was um i thought it was brilliant i thought you know and i'm being objective i really thought that no matter even if i wasn't married to you that was a brilliant topic so and clearly, it's really catching on. Uh, it's getting a lot of buzz. But what I think is um, a kind of a fun story that I would love for you to share is you were, you, as you said, waited till kind of like the last hour, so to speak, to really get your ducks in a row. And you, you pretty much had your stuff laid out. And then please share the story about what happened when you got to, uh, when you got to where right, you were going. Right. Yeah. So... You're right. I, I again, I waited till the last minute, but before I, you know, completely bury myself under the procrastination <laughs> dump truck, um, one of the reasons that I put it off is because, and you know, to spill the beans a little bit here, my TED talk was, you know, about how news media and the way they approach that industry in the professional wrestling business and the way that business has been approached historically are really almost identical, and. I knew that going in. I knew that months before. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. One of the challenges, and one of the reasons I procrastinated, I'm giving myself a, a, a hall pass here, <laughs> is because there was so much going on in the media with the uh, midterms, with the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, the, the hyperbole and the, the intensity uh, of what was going on on a day-to-day -day basis, basis in the news media. I mean, things were changing so quickly. I was afraid to get too married to a concept and have to wake up after I completely figured it out in my head and put to put it to paper. Have to get up and go, oh my gosh, I can't do that because this happened today. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I kind of rode the wave of of the current news cycles, you know, before till about a week before, and then I thought, okay, nothing's too much is going to change between now and then, and I started putting the skeleton outline together. But to your point, you know, sure enough, my, my TED Talk was uh, 1 o'clock um, Saturday afternoon Central Time in Naperville, which is a suburb of Chicago. I didn't really start putting it to paper till the night before mm -hmm. on my iPad. Mm -hmm. okay? Important to note here, my iPad. I usually work <laughs> off my laptop, but I was working off my iPad. So I'll fast forward through the story and get to the critical points. I was working on the plane. It was like anywhere you time, anytime you go anywhere from Cody, Wyoming to anywhere in the United States, it's about a 12-hour flight. I don't care where it is. Um, so jumped on a plane, you know, flew all day. My flight was scheduled to land in, in Chicago about midnight or 1 a.m. And I'm working away on my iPad feverishly. Now that things are starting to come together because I have to see it in my head creatively, no matter what it is, if it's a if it's a short paragraph describing something or if it's a long intro or if I'm doing something on television, I have to see it in my head like I'm watching a movie before it comes together for me. I'm a very visually based person. So once it came together in my head the night before, I started you know, reducing it to paper or, in my case, digital paper on my iPad. Get up the next morning, boom, drive, fly to Chicago, about an hour and a half or two hours before we were scheduled to land, I started getting tired. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a little nap before we land. You know, I'll, I'll get in, get up early in the morning, and we'll pick it up where I left off. Okay, fast forward. 
all of a sudden, ding, 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 bam, bam, bam. That's the sound of my plane touching down at the runway in Chicago. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. I wake up from a sound sleep. Everybody's scrambling to get off the plane, rush to get their baggage. I'm caught up in it all. I grab my bag. I head out the door. I grab my luggage. I get to my hotel. I set my alarm. I wake up the next morning. I reach in my bag for my iPad so I can finish this TED Talk I'm, my wife is so excited about. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I reach in my bag at 530 in the morning, one eye is still kind of closed shut, got sleep in my eye, and the other one's still puffy. And I reach in my bag, and what do I find? Fucking nothing. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> my iPad is on the plane, uh-huh. which is probably in Dallas at this point. Um. So, yeah, I, I and I and then I panicked for, you know, a few minutes, had a couple cups of coffee, called you. Yes. Said, Could you call American Airlines? Uh-huh. But I knew at the time I called you. I knew I wasn't going to get it back. So, I, I only had two choices. Go out there and try to remember, which I don't like doing, try to remember everything that I kind of thought I was going to say. Or start from scratch. And, and it was still based on the same discussion. The promise was the same. But the entire way that I laid it out was completely different. And I thought, once again, um, I've only done this a couple thousand times in front of 20,000 people at a time and millions of people watching at home. This just isn't that big a deal if I don't allow it to be. Now, if right. I allowed it to be a big deal... Because it's a TED Talk. It's not a wrestling event that I could probably do in my sleep, and I think I probably have. But it's a TED Talk. If I would have allowed myself to think of it differently, I would have probably panicked. But I didn't. It's just, yeah, I've done yeah. this before. Yeah, and that was probably very key. Because, you know, the things that we tell ourselves, the meaning that you could have given it had you let yourself go, oh, but yeah, it's a TED Talk. You could have psyched yourself out easily. In, in the wrestling business, they refer to that psychological phenomenon as working yourself into a shoot. When you think about something so much, even though it may not be real, but you overthink it to the point where you get yourself way more excited about it than you should, good or bad. You just, yeah, you, it's like, okay. I mean, here's the other thing. I don't want to go too far off on tangents, but I get excited about this stuff. As you know, I can't watch a television show or a movie or anything. I look at life as a three-act play. I don't care what it is. I, when, I, when we go to a movie, um, I try to anticipate when the beginning of the second act starts. Because the story, you know, the, the formula for a book, a play, whether it's a musical, you know, a drama on television or a wrestling match is all basically the beginning, the middle and the end. And each each segment, each act has a specific purpose. And if you begin to think about what you watch, what you read, even to a degree how life plays out in a way, it's all three act play. Mm-hmm. And when you can really define the transitions of those acts, then you can start then you can start seeing things differently in order to deliver them differently. So I thought, okay, here's my premise. I need to break it down to a beginning. What's the middle? The middle is where, in my case of a TED Talk, where the information comes from. Mm-hmm. And then what's the third act? How does it end? And if the end sort of relates to the beginning – 
or in some cases, if it really hangs on the beginning, mm -hmm. you have a perfect three-act play. And you can pretty much fit anything you want into a three-act play or yeah. a three-act structure. Yeah. Wow. Well, either way, <laughs> either way. I just burned you out, didn't I? <laughs> no, I mean, just, uh, I, I guess, I mean, this is just your wheelhouse. All of this, you know, talking and especially... Either that or I'm crazy. I'm not <laughs> sure which. Whatever works, right? But it's your wheelhouse, so you are not prone to getting overly anxious or nervous about that kind of thing. Not about that kind of thing. Yeah. Other things I will, but not when it comes to speaking or performing. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think in particular, too, um, the skill you've developed to uh, when it comes to timing because of being in the TV business and, okay, I have to get this much information and say this within this amount of time, um, really probably uh, lent itself well to this particular topic because it's timed. It, it, it is timed. You have, you know, they set the clock at 18 minutes and then you have somebody sitting there with an iPad in the front row that's basically giving you the countdown. But I only looked at it once or twice. And actually, the first time I looked at it, I looked at it just to make sure I could find the damn thing. Because mm. they told me it was going to be out there. And, you know me, without my glasses on, I can't see shit. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, great. I'm up on the stage. All the lights are on me. I can barely see anything out in the audience. And I'm looking for somebody with a 12-inch iPad. Yeah. And I was prepared not to be able to find it. I knew, I know what 18 minutes right. is. I can feel it, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. You've got to feel for so it. So I, I didn't allow that aspect of what I was doing to panic me. Like, and, you know, I can't tell what 18 minutes is, but I can tell what six minutes is three times. <laughs> <laughs> and really, that's what I mean. I, yeah. When I break things down into three-act structures, I think of it in that way. I didn't think of 18 minutes. Mm -hmm. I thought of three six-minute segments. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it worked. I mean, no, um, you know, you didn't have your finished product in hand. You didn't have your iPad. Uh, so you basically started from scratch, started from scratch, just about. And here's the fun part of starting from scratch. So this is where the magic comes. And this is why, and I tell you, you know, when you're getting ready to do your podcasts and yeah. your interviews and you come to me and you ask me for help and I want to help you because mm -hmm. I love you and I want to see you do something you enjoy doing. And for all the right reasons, I want to share with you anything and everything I can. Unfortunately, my approach to this art that you're now engaged in mm -hmm. is not to overthink it. And how many times do I tell you, just quit thinking about it? You know, <laughs> yeah. know what you want to talk about, know how you want to end it, and just let the rest flow. Because otherwise, you are forcing thoughts that may not be natural to the conversation into it. Now, here's a perfect example how that manifested in a really positive way with me. And, I mean... In the wrestling business, you know, the things that I've that I've been known for were all essentially based in one way, shape, or form in controversy. Here go the title of the book: Controversy Creates Cash. And and developing Nitro for Turner Broadcasting was really an effort in trying to find a way to be different than everybody else. I had to be different than the WWF because there's no way during 1995 when I launched that show in prime time could I possibly have been better than them. That was outside of my scope of possibility mm -hmm. initially. But I knew what was in my grasp was just to do it different. And sometimes doing it different is better than better. <laughs> yeah. Because people are looking for something different. So, okay, fast forward. 
So I left all my notes on an airplane. They were in Chicago. I'm in, or they were in Dallas. I'm in Chicago. I've got to kind of wing or improv what I want to do for the most part. And I, I go back to what I know, which is, okay, how can I do this so different than anybody else that's ever done it before? And I remember I called you. I was on my way to the Billings Airport where I was flying out of. And I called you and I said, I think I'm going to do something fucking crazy. But before I do it, I want to run it by you yeah. to see if I'm nuts yeah. or if you think it's a good idea. And I told you what I was going to do. And I thought, okay, now that, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll share with the audience what that is in a moment, but I'm going to keep the anticipation growing. So <laughs> I knew I was going to completely do something that had never been done before in a TED Talk that I was aware of, at least, in the research I did. And I, I ran it by you, and you said, no, you're not crazy. You think it's cool. So now I'm in Chicago the next day, and now I'm thinking to myself, well, should I tell the organizer of this event what I'm going to do? Because if I don't tell him, he's probably, like, going to shit fire backstage. <laughs> right. And his head's going to spin off his shoulders because I'm going to go out and completely offend the audience. Yeah, yeah. He, he would have panicked for sure. And if you're, if you're not a wrestling fan, or if you are a wrestling fan, I should say, you know, what I was going to do is go out and heal on the audience as a wrestling character would, a bad guy wrestling character would. I thought, what a great way to get people's attention. Okay. And to also prove my point, that sometimes feelings are easier to, easier to create than thoughts or thinking. So I went out, I, before I go out, I, I went to Arthur Zars, the, the promoter or producer of the event, and I said, Arthur, here's what I'm gonna do, because I don't want you to freak out. What was his first reaction? He loved it. He loved it. Nice. Yeah. He said, wow, that nobody's ever done that before. And, I've never seen it. And he said, look, Eric, I told you on the phone, and I don't remember him telling me this, but he was certain that he did. He said, I told you on the phone the first time we talked, we want you to swing for the fences in your talk. Hit it, as, take a swing, swing as hard as you possibly can, you know, hoping that you'll, you'll make contact with the ball. Swing for the fences. And he goes, that's swinging for the fences. I said, okay, great. <laughs> Please tell your security. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell him to please not come and drive yeah. me off the stage. <laughs> so, yeah. That, but see, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. If I would have put all my energy and committed to working out this TED Talk weeks or months in advance, that thought wouldn't have occurred to me. And if, if I, I didn't do that, if I wouldn't have done that, the effectiveness of that talk would have been diminished by probably 75 or 80% because I had everybody's attention. Yeah, yeah. You you actually demonstrated the formula in real time right there. They were like a test, and they were, they were unknowingly part of that demonstration. And so then they could really – the point was obviously well-made then because they just experienced they it. They engaged in it. They were part of the process. You know, I looked down at the, the the fat lady who was glaring at me like she wanted me to burn in, in hell, and I accused her of wanting to have sex with me. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, that was uh, bold. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw some 40-year-old guy sitting there with his arms, you know, folded across his chest. And mm -hmm. He had on a pair of really cool, you know, probably $1,300, you know, designer glasses, and he's looking at me, you know, over his eyebrow through his really cool eyeglasses. 
And I'm thinking, you know, if, if he thought he could get away with it, he, he, you know, he'd come up and smack me. So I challenged him to come up on the stage and take a swing at me. Mm-hmm. You know, and by that time, I'm, by that time, the audience, and here's a funny part of that open. When I first go out, you know, I start, you know, I went out there with a scowl on my face. You know, they gave me this little, you know, happy, you know, Partridge family round of applause. I went, oh, great. You know, you give me a Pavlov's dog response. You know, you're, you're clapping because you think you should. Is that all you got? You know, and of course, and they all laughed. Mm-hmm. They thought, oh, he thinks he's funny. He's a comedian. Mm-hmm. Not a good one, but he's a comedian. <laughs> and oh, we'll laugh and we'll clap. And then I healed on him again. And by the time I got to the point where I accused a fat lady of wanting to have sex with me, the people in the audience were stunned. They didn't know a wrestling event. Oh, everybody would have been boo! You suck because right. they would have they would have been in on the joke, right? They right. would have known what I was doing. Yeah, this audience didn't have a clue. They just thought no. I was nuts. When you watch it, you can actually see when that when the shift occurred in the audience from playing along. Uh, like you said, they thought maybe you were a comedian, and they were like, you know, they were they were getting it, and they were they were laughing and chuckling and, and clapping. Well, and then uh, and then you could see when you went to the um, when you went to the point of specifically insulting an individual, uh, then they were like, whoa! It, it's like the whole energy changed, and they weren't sure. They were very unsure how to react, and it's like they didn't want to be rude and boo, but they were no longer like chuckling and kind of clapping and going they didn't along know how to react. They were completely confused. And, and that was the challenge of doing that because I couldn't really see the audience beyond the first couple of rows, right? And they weren't, a, you know, like, again, a wrestling audience, which is what I would be used to, is very animated. They're very easy to read. Everything is in fluorescent colors. You know, it's fluorescent red and fluorescent green and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you know exactly where the audience is. And you know when they're bored stiff. So you can, it's so easy to read a wrestling audience, but when you're in a dark room like that and you're with a, a, a more conservative audience who isn't normally, you know, isn't used to being part of the show, it's really challenging to read them. It is for me or was for me because I don't do it. I have never done it before, but I knew that going in. I knew if I go too far with this, I'll completely lose them. And, and not in a good way. You know, there's a way you can get heat and get people angry. And that's a good thing if you're trying to do what I was trying to do. But you can also go so far where they completely turn turn away from you. And once they turn away from you, you can't get them back. You know, they, they've disengaged. It's like they're thinking about what they're going to do when they get home with their kids. Or looking. They're not really wanting to hear anymore. Yeah. And, and you have to, you have to, and you can't listen for, I've learned, <laughs> thanks to that, and that experience you can't listen for it because they don't make any noise you have to feel it and i could feel it and that's when i and i knew what i was going to do i knew i had to transition out of that heel character and now tell everybody why i'm really here right yeah yeah and i i sensed it i said okay this is far enough if i go any farther i'm going to go the wrong way right and then what's going to happen i think you know because the the venue is you're there for a whole different reason i mean when it's when you're in the the ring and you're entertaining people it's all about you know the the entertainment and and what you're doing to intentionally bring out all of emotion in whichever way you're trying to bring that out the the goal is to bring out emotion in the audience mm-hmm. and that's why and they know that's why they're there but for a ted talk the goal is to 
deliver a message and have it received well. And so if you would have gone too far, I feel like they would have no longer been receptive to your message had you gone so far that they just went, okay, I don't like this. And then they would maybe not have been at all open yeah, to receiving you, you, the message. They, you take them so far you can't get them back. Yeah, same, yeah. Same yeah. So which is a, which is the beauty of this is that that is exactly the point, what we just said, that uh, you are driving home in your message is evoking emotion and the, the power that that people have, whether you're an entertainer or news media, to evoke emotion in people and really how easy that is to do. But let's, let's stop right there because I just did an interesting interview with a, a, a writer from one of the oldest continually – uh, printed newspapers in Canada, and he saw the TED Talk and, and wanted to do an interview today about it. And something that I didn't know, I just learned this morning, is, you know, when we were discussing the, the, the business of the media, the news media business and the wrestling business, um, one of the things that we kind of zeroed in on is the impact of digital and, and how, like right now, probably 50 or 60 percent of the people in the United States, they don't get their news from television from radio, from newspaper, from magazines, any kind of long-form content. They get it in short-form content through Twitter and 140 yeah. characters or Facebook in many cases or whatever. And the attention span is so short. And he said, not, not only are you right, Eric, he said, but in our own newspaper, because so much of the revenue that our newspaper generates is from the online version of our printed paper. And the goal is not just a click. It's not just clickbait. The goal, like the holy grail of a digital news story is that you retain the reader for a maximum of two minutes. Like that's like when you do that, you're like hitting it out of the park. Hmm. You get raises and shit. Really? If you're a writer and you can consistently deliver readers who are sticking with your content, or they call it in-story, for close to two minutes or two minutes, you're a rock star. And it's only, I'm thinking only two minutes. But think about this. How much information can you really share in two minutes? Yeah, not much. You can't. But you can create emotion in two minutes. It, and, and that was, you know, one yeah. of the things looking back at the TED Talk that I didn't do as well is I could have gone into a little bit more discussion about the difference between heat, which is getting people angry, and cheap heat. Heat, quality heat in the wrestling industry, which is the, the kind of heat that generates real money for a long period of time, real heat is difficult to create. It takes imagination. It takes great execution. It takes a lot of things. It takes great characters. Uh, it takes a great premise. Cheap heat, which is coming out and making fun of fat people or telling them their town stinks or, mm -hmm. you know, their kids are goofy or... It's rude and insulting. Know, and that's that's cheap heat and that's easy. That, you don't have to have a lot of imagination. You watch every German wrestler that comes out and tries to get heat when they don't really know how. The first thing to do is come out and insult the baseball team or the football team or people sitting at red side because that's easy. It doesn't take any talent. And cheap heat is what the news tends to do because real heat takes a little more time and a little more imagination and talent, but just cheap heat, you know, that's easy and it's profitable. 
and you'll keep people coming back for at least two minutes per story mm -hmm. if you do a good job at it. Sure. And, um, you know, emotions are actually, people get addicted to their emotions. So if you are a person that is um, addicted to uh, very intense emotions or drama or things that stir up um, like adrenaline and stuff in you. Those are things we actually get addicted to emotions phys physically. And so I think that, um, you know, cheap heat, as you put it, uh, which is something that the media is really doing so well now, is really a way to get uh, your listeners, your audience, addicted to your content. Or just to agree with you from an ideological point of view. It, 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 you know, you look at, that's why so many people in Hollywood feel the need to jump in on social media and, 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 and get their heat or, or make their statement that's designed to make the people that believe what they believe, believe in them or admire them even more. And it creates the opposite reaction of the people on the other side of the equation. Well, everybody wins from an energy point of view because it's a heightened level of pure energy. But I'm, I'm going to go back to what you said about being addicted. I don't think you become addicted to emotions. I think it's a physiological condition that's inherent in human beings. Think about it for a minute. When you were a little kid and you came downstairs for Christmas, since it's that holiday, and you were anticipating what was going to be under the tree, and you had all this buildup leading into Christmas ever since Thanksgiving back in the good old days. Um, your heart rate went up mm -hmm. as you come down the stairs and you start opening presents. It's a rush. You know, when you, when you had, a, had a can of Pepsi and the sugar hits your system, that's a rush, mm -hmm. right? When you go out on your first date and you're starting that part of your life, you're, you're excited. You get, your heart starts beating faster. Everything that you do that's meaningful in your life generally is associated with an accelerated heart rate. When you're having great sex, your heart rate goes up. Yeah, but the same thing happens. You get those same reactions biologically, physiologically, when it's, when it's uh, negative emotion. But that's my point. Right. So it's not that you're addicted. I think you're born with it. I think what's happening is the news media is capitalizing on, capitalizing on a human condition, which is if we can get your heart rate up just long enough for you to stick with it, You'll come back. You you'll come back to us more for this content. But it it really is, I think, human beings when they start getting angry. It's not that they're addicted to it; it's their nature to to respond to it. And you, you, when 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 you see something that makes you angry, you don't say to yourself, "Hmm, I'm going to think about why I'm angry about that." You don't think about that. When a guy cuts you off in the middle of the street, you know, like he didn't even see you, you don't go, "Hmm." I'm going to analyze and think about why I feel the way I feel about that. You just flip them off and motherfucker them to yourself. Well, not <laughs> well, everybody. You, not you don't, but I do. <laughs> See, I may have, you know, at one time in my life, but now, um, but well, now, I don't. You, now, now I don't. Now I don't. Now I don't. Now you're a better person. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a better person, exactly. <laughs> well, because I know that the kind of, that that kind of energetic rush isn't a, isn't a um, it's not a good one. I would rather have the energetic rush, the chemical release of 
good chemicals that make me feel better, not um, aggressive. Yeah, but most people don't think about that. And I think that's why most people are affected, not knowing why, but there's, and I'm, I'm one of them, by the way, you know, I've quit watching as much news for that very reason. You know, I was a news junkie for a long time. I know. I, I grew up, you know, we, you and I have not talked about this much, I don't think, but in, when Martin Luther King was killed, it was February of 68, I think, um, I was still living in Detroit, and I had a teacher by the name of Mrs. Fields. And Mrs. Fields took that moment in time that of current events and taught an entire course around it, or a curriculum, I should say, around it. And it ended up with us going to the Greenfield Village Museum, outside the Henry Ford Museum outside of Detroit, where I saw the chair that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in because it happened to be on display at this particular mm -hmm. museum mm -hmm. at that time. That's pretty cool. And it all tied together. And it left such a, a it still does, a very vivid and distinct impression of, uh, on me then that I still carry with me now. That started my whole interest in current events. Not politics when I was that young, but certainly current events. And as I got older, you know, current events and politics kind of are, are hand in hand. Gradually and eventually I became more interested in politics. You know, I, I remember watching, you know, debates with Jimmy Carter. And I remember, you know, Watergate like it was yesterday. I followed, you know, Watergate, you know, the summer between, I think, was he my junior and senior year or the summer between my senior and freshman year of college? One of the other, junior and senior year. I was following Watergate. Mm -hmm. At 16 years old, you know, it was fascinating to me. So it's always kind of been there for me. But I quit recently because the, I'll, I'll listen to certain, like I'll listen to BBC, the British Broadcasting Channel, mm -hmm. because corporation, because their news is not quite motivated. It's not quite driven by the same financial animal as the, the news that is here in the States. So I'll listen to it. They're catering to a different financial market. So I'll listen to that. Occasionally I'll listen to NPR just because I like the variety of the information that you get, things that you think about in the way it's presented on NPR. I know they're a very liberal um, network, but I still love their content mm -hmm. because it, it's, not, it's not fed to me in a way that makes me defensive or makes me angry. It literally makes me think. Yeah, and that's, I think that's really key, and that's part of, um, well, it's really why I liked your, the content of your TED Talk, because it was really um, focusing on the different ways that media manipulates the viewer, basically, into feeling certain ways without um, promoting any kind of... Um, independent thought. But here's, what, here's what's fascinating. I just, this thought just occurred to me. I'm listening to myself telling the world how I probably listen to NPR more than I listen to anything else. So most people believe, you know, NPR is a very liberal source of news and information. And, and I might agree with some of that, but they're not driven by commercials. They're for the most part, they get a lot of private donations and corporate donations and some government subsidies and so forth. But for the most part, they're not an ad-driven network. So they can afford 
to tell you a story if they if they do it well enough and give you enough information but do it do it in a way like a good writer would that would provoke thought they can do that your traditional radio networks can't yeah they're kind of beholden to the advertisers they have to be they have to be and and and, that, and they're affected by that not only in terms of their choice to create cheap heat for profit, but they're almost forced into that because they don't have the time to do it right. You know, another thing that I talked about a little bit in the TED Talk, but I think really deserves an entire, probably a show of its own from somebody other than me, because I'm not an expert on network news or cable news. But, you know, I do remember, I'm old enough to remember, I see a lot of that lately, I'm old enough to remember when CNN first launched. We were married. Yeah. And the Iraq war was something, you know, first Iraq war was something that really changed, you know, cable news forever. Prior to that, Ted Turner launched the cable news network because he really believed that a 24-hour news network that reported news from all over the world would bring the world together. That was his motivation and his belief at that time. And it worked really well. Yes. It worked so well that, you know, Rupert Murdoch's and Fox News came along, then, you know, NBC came up with MSNBC, and then all the various extensions of those various uh, news media companies began to proliferate. And all of a sudden, people realized that, hey, it costs a lot of money to have actual journalists stationed in all these major cities around the world and crews. And, you know, that's, you know, Reporting the news is very expensive. Getting three knuckleheads in a room to talk about the news in front of a green screen, hell, that's cheap. We can do that. And we can fill those 24 hours of people talking about the news and arguing about the news a lot more effectively because we're creating emotion and it's cheaper. Right. It's cheap heat. Yeah. Driven by economics. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned um, Ted just talk about somebody that went rogue and really did something that was totally unique to what throughout he, his life, throughout his life, and everything that he did, including everything that he's doing. At what is he, eighty four or eighty two? I just saw his birthday was recently. I had to wish him happy birthday on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, to this day, he's still going rogue. Yeah, and, and you really, I mean, he was a visionary, and he did a lot of things, and it still is, to, to your point of um, about going rogue, and that's really what, I mean, as long as I've known you, and even before I knew you, just the stories that I've heard, you have spent a lifetime going rogue, and I think that, um, you know, I, I just think that those kinds of stories, and, and if there's something like really major that comes to your mind that you want to share. But I think that the sharing those stories with people really gives other people the uh, inspiration and, and the permission when they're thinking about maybe doing something that is so different or so unexpected or so, you know, out of their norm that they're almost afraid to do it. They just don't know. Most people are. Most people are, right? And sometimes... I, I feel like when we share those kinds of stories, uh, it gives people permission to go, well, you know what, they did it, and look at how things have turned out. So I, I love it when we can have somebody on that is willing to share 
any kind of their version of going rogue because I really feel like it inspires other people to do something that they're maybe, you know, hesitant, they're on the fence about. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't have any moments that I would consider rogue moments necessarily, but I've always, I've approached everything in my life um, quite a bit differently than everybody else has. Mm -hmm. And and some of it, I think, is just something you're, you're born with, you inherit some of it, or it's in your spirit, or however you want to think of it. I, you know, my parents, my father was very conservative. Uh, my mother, uh, conservative in the sense is, you know, get get a job that, you know, pays you a good salary, work 95, yeah. and, you know, you'll get that watch in a retirement when you're 65. Yeah, very I mean, old school. Took a very traditional approach to things. My mother was a stay-at-home mom and, until, you know, as kids we got much older and she could work outside the house. So it wasn't necessarily my family necessarily that taught me or encouraged me to do that. I was a born, I was born an entrepreneur. I, re I don't remember it because I was too young to remember it, but I remember distinctly my mother and my father and my grandmother, who didn't really like me much as a kid, um, <laughs> described to me how when I was like four years old or five years old, I ran away from home. And I was gone for hours, and they couldn't find me. And evidently, because I don't remember it, what I did, according to my parents and grandmother, um, was I went around collecting pop bottle caps in my neighborhood because people would crack a bottle of pop, throw a cap on the side of the road or in the street or whatever. Yeah. I went around and collected pop bottle caps and then sold them door to door to my neighbors. <laughs> so when my parents found me, you know, a couple hours later, I was like two blocks over selling pop bottle caps. <laughs> With all kinds of change in your pockets. Yeah. Well, of course, you're a five-year-old kid selling a pop bottle cap. Are you going to say, no, I'm not going to give you a nickel? <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. I, you know, I had my first job when I was probably six or eight years old. Not much after that, really. You know, my job was to stand out in front of a little supermarket called Lucy's. And it's right on the corner of Curtis and Packard. It's still there. Wait, is that, that's owners. in Detroit? In Detroit, oh. well, East Detroit. But my job was to um, pick up as all the garbage out in front, all the papers, candy wrappers, and crap like that. And then when I was done, I got to reach into the cash, cash register with one hand, and whatever coins I could hold on to was my pay for the day. I was there every day. Mm -hmm. I was a trash picking son of a gun, you know, <laughs> at eight years old, and I loved it because I, you know, as I got older, I got a job stacking bottles and working in the, you know, so I've been working my whole life. Now that's not necessarily going rogue, but it is because everybody else in school was, you know, go to school, you know, that's your most going to school was not the most important thing to me. Yeah, I only went to school for well, when you're in grade school, you're forced to in junior high, but by the time I was old enough, you know to find hair on my chin, um, it's like, fuck this. I'm not going, I could go work. Right. I could, I could make $45 today instead of sitting in a class studying, you know, Greek philosophy, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to go put 45 bucks in my pocket. And I never, you know, one reason I went to college is because that's where the parties were and all my friends were there. I had never thought for a moment about going to college when I was in high school. I didn't think about it till after high school graduation. I went, Shit, all my friends are moving away. I'm either going to be here by myself or I'm going to go to college. Boom. I'll go to college. Yeah. Not well, because you, I wanted to. You got further than I did. I think that's what we have so much. Um, I mean, we grew up differently and, and we have a few years between us, but there's so much about that story just in general that we have in common. You know, no time for school. Only, only was there when you had to be. 
I'd much rather be out working. I work too from a really young age. And I think that we both, uh, I think one of the things that has been so exciting for us in our 34 plus years together is, is we've never been afraid to even to go rogue on anything and do things like throw caution to the wind. We take big risks and you know, that takes, that takes a lot of, takes a lot of uh, you know what courage you know what you know what it does though and this is where i think and i'm just learning this now i mean i'm 63 I've been together with you 34 plus years 36 37 in total um but i'm starting to really not only know it but act on it you know, there's a lot of things i know that don't necessarily act on like i know eating too much pizza on a friday night is going to make me feel like crap but guess what i'm going to do it anyway you know what i mean occasionally <laughs> There's a lot of things I know that I don't act on appropriately. But one of the things I really believe now and I'm acting on is that you can't, you can't embrace going rogue. You can't embrace taking chances without learning how to manage failure. Yes. And I think that's one thing that we're taught. You know, we're conditioned as in our culture is, you know, failure is bad. Failure is not ideal. Success is far preferable. But when you learn how to look at your failure and break it down and figure out what you've learned from it, what you can actually take away and apply on your next rogue venture, mm -hmm. before long, if you've been doing it all your life like we have, before long, fear of failure, just I, I don't fear it. You know, right. I, I, you, you got to survive. You got to keep your head above water. But to go from, wow, we're way up here to, oh, shit, we got to start over. Mm -hmm. It's not as scary to me as it probably was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Because I just know what I've got in my arsenal. Yeah. And some of the most valuable weapons I have are not from what I've learned based on my successes. Some of the most powerful weapons in my arsenal are the ones that I've accumulated through the mistakes I've made or the failures I've experienced. Yeah. I don't even look at them as failures. I look at them as lessons. It's like, yeah. and I've, I've got a master's degree in fucking shit up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, me too. Me too. Um, and I, I agree. I think it's about how you define failure. That's, that's part of it. Because everyone has, depending on what the situation and circumstance are, circumstances are, um, there's different ways to define failure. You know, you can define it by, did I make money or did I lose money? You know, did I, did I, uh, find the love of my life and then lose the love of my life, you know, because of, because of X, Y, or Z, there's a lot of different ways to, to, uh, to define failure. Um, but I think, um, if I think that it, when it comes to business and, um, in that, in that genre, m most people, the higher percentage, and I used to know it, now I can't think of it, but um, the, the highest percentage of people that are self-made um, successful business people, not people that have inherited, uh, which is like, what, 1% of the population, I think, uh, but everybody else that's um, acquired what we would consider in, in our country as uh, a lot of wealth have uh, failed. On their way there. Uh, many, not and not just once, like... A half a dozen times or more they have they have succeeded a little and then you know quote unquote failed and then succeeded again and then 
failed and then succeeded again. So it's a process, but I think you, you know, there is something inherent in people that are just willing to risk it and you're willing to risk big because you're going for something big. And it's cultural. And let's give you an example that's the antithesis of everything you just described, because you're right. What you just described more or less defines American entre entrepreneurship at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And you can probably go through the list of all the really famous entrepreneurs in, in the history of the world or our country and find out most of them went through the journey, as yep. you described. But here's the opposite. Let's look at Japan. Most of us, most people who will talk about Japan from an economic perspective and a cultural perspective will agree that for the most part, Japanese don't really invent anything, but they're really good at perfecting everything. Kaizen! <laughs> Again, they don't really invent anything, mm -hmm. but they're really good at perfecting mm -hmm. everything. It's the nature of their culture. It's the way they're conditioned. You know, we have a friend who's Japanese, Sonny Ono, and Sonny told me when he was a kid growing up that there's a saying in Japan that nail that stands up, the nail that stands up the highest gets hammered the hardest. They, they, they condition you very early on, traditionally, to conform. It's part of, it's, it's, you're, the more you conform to history, traditions, culture, the more respect you get from your peers and your community, right? So it works for that culture. Failure is worth killing yourself over in some aspects of Japanese culture. Harikari, harikiri is, is a traditionally, not so much anymore today, although it is true to this day, um, people who, there, there's a, there's, I think it's called the hanging forest outside of Tokyo. It's where a place where traditionally people who have failed at life in, in business in particular, go and hang themselves. Oh. And it's still very much, a, you don't hear about it a lot, but it's true. That, that, that culture conditions their citizens to think that failure is the most embarrassing, horrible thing that could happen to you. They're okay with you stealing someone else's shit and copying it and making it better. That makes sense. But don't take the chance of trying to invent it yourself. Don't invest in trying to figure out something on your own. Because if you fail, and the odds are you will, the odds for entrepreneurs are really bad. There's like 7 or 80% against you for the most part. Mm -hmm. And they're conditioned not to take that risk, but to put their energy and their, their vast amount of knowledge and education to perfecting what other people create. It's safe. It's safe. Interesting. Huh. So different. So different than it is here. So, oh my gosh. I mean, we went all over the place. This was fun. I know. Can you imagine if I was drinking how much fun this would be? <laughs> <laughs> Some, sometime we'll do that. We'll do the night shift podcast yeah. and we'll have a we'll have a drink and then we'll cocktail podcast. And, and then we'll go off on all kinds of happy hour. We'll call it happy, happy hour. Happy <laughs> hour, right. Uh, we'll go off on all kinds of tangents. But um so I guess we kind of covered this, but I, I do like to always at least end um, asking our guest um, if there's, you know, one thing, or it doesn't have to be one thing, but what do you think, what would you share with everybody in your idea is the value of going rogue? 
the self-confidence you build over time, the, the feeling of, I don't want to say invincibility, but knowing that you can find the resources or you can find the solutions or you can recognize the challenges that are in front of you if you want to make a decision and not being intimidated by that. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to make a decision to jump off a cliff and do it, but you need to have confidence in your judgment and your instinct. You know, people don't talk enough about instinct. They talk about intellect. They talk about experience. But if you haven't connected those two and developed a good instinct for things, you're probably going to come up short more often than not. And I think what you develop when you go rogue and you give yourself permission to try new things is you come out of it okay and you go, you know what, that worked out pretty good. I may not have achieved exactly what I wanted to achieve, but here's what I got out of that. Yeah. And here's how I'm going to apply that to the next time I do this. And if you just look at it as like bodybuilding mm-hmm. instead of looking at it as, you know, a, a win-loss record, all of a sudden you think about taking risks in a much healthier way. I love that. Absolutely. Well, we, with all of the going rogue and um, uh, successes and, and non-successes, we have huge muscles. <laughs> I know, I'm not even sure I'm going to fit through those doors and get our down muscles, to my office. Our muscles are so big right now. <laughs> yeah. Inside my head, I'm walking around like, you know, a, a jacked up block. You know, I've got the lat spread going on. And, you know, there's veins popping out of my brains. And, you know, I just start, I'm all vascular. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> anyway, well. That was good. Would you um, do you want to tell everyone quick where we can find um, find you find your stuff? I mean, you've got a podcast. Um, podcast is called Eighty Three yeah. Weeks with Eric Bischoff. You can find it wherever you get your favorite podcast. Um, you can find me on Twitter at e bischoff. Um, and the uh, TED Talk. It's TEDx Naperville. TEDx Naperville. Just like it sounds, came out in November. I think we're just a little over two hundred fifty thousand views this morning. So yeah, on our way to a million. That'll be a good. That'll be a champagne afternoon. Yeah, it, and it's only been a week. Yeah, well, ten a days. Week? Yeah, ten days. Yeah. So awesome. All right, I Thank gotta you. go. I got my own stuff to do. It's been all afternoon talking to you, selling your podcast. I got my own shit to do. <laughs> Thanks for the time, babe. Oh, oh, love of my life. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, hon. Thank you. That was different for me, I got to say. But, uh, yes, I have to thank my husband, Eric Bischoff, for spending the time and doing that. That was actually a lot of fun. I got to say I was a little nervous. I don't know why, but I was. But thank you. And, um if you liked what you heard, please uh, go on over to uh, Apple iTunes podcast and subscribe to the We're Talking Shift podcast. You can also find us uh, on patreon.com forward slash talking shift. Our website is we're talking shift podcast.com. And of course, we're all over social media Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're talking shift podcast. Thank you. You go out and make some shift happen now. And you too, Gary V. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.